Hello and welcome to the Sublime Forecast. I'm Gareth Westwood, Head of Global Intelligence, and you join us from central London on a very wet and windy Tuesday afternoon on the 10th of January 2023. Welcome to episode one. In this week's episode, we'll be joined by Anastasia Chisholm to discuss Israel's newly appointed government. Sydney Stewart will help us unpack the recent attacks on US energy infrastructure. And Sophia Walford will help us understand recent tensions in Kosovo. Well, today to discuss um, Israel, we are joined by Anastasia Chisholm. How are you? Yeah, I'm well, thanks. I'm well. How are you? Very good. Now, I know we've been watching this situation for quite some time. Uh, your desk in particular has been putting out quite a lot of reporting to clients over the Christmas period. But for those listeners and indeed viewers who aren't quite up to speed yet on the new government and uh, where we are, can you give us a bit of context? Yeah, of course. Um, so Israel held its fifth elections in four years on the 1st of November. And these resulted in a 64-seat majority to a right religious government led by Benjamin Netanyahu, who uh, was sworn in on the 29th uh, for his sixth term as Prime Minister of Israel. Now, following the elections on the 1st of November, in the weeks after, um, Benjamin Netanyahu engaged in a kind of prolonged negotiation process with coalition partners, namely uh, ultra-Orthodox and conservative partners, primarily on the issues of ministerial appointments as well as policy. Um, coming out of this, we've seen some ministerial appointments that have been deemed controversial, particularly by uh, some elements of the left wing in Israel. Um, and this has in part been due to the need to fast track some legislation to essentially facilitate these appointments. Um, nonetheless, Israel's government was sworn in on the 29th of December. Thanks, Anastasia. So we've seen quite a few appointments as recently as last week, uh, and, and I've been reading a lot of criticism um, in the media. I know we've been you know, pushing out alerts at our end. What are we seeing at the minute in terms of reaction? We, are we seeing more stability or are we seeing security risks that could affect organisations and individuals? We're definitely seeing some security risk emerge from this. Uh, last weekend, so the 7th of January, we observed some pretty uh, major protests in central uh, Tel Aviv, uh, right by Habima Square, of about 20,000 uh, anti-government demonstrators. Now, the government's made some moves as recently as yesterday to kind of clamp down on protesters, particularly those blocking roads such as uh, the ALN Highway, uh, which we did see on uh, Saturday the 7th. In the coming weeks, we can expect to see a continuation of these kind of large-scale rallies. And although they've been relatively peaceful so far, the potential presence uh, or rallying of uh, pro-Netanyahu and pro-government protesters will increase the likelihood of uh, clashes and potentially bystander risks for uh, personnel travelling in uh, central Tel Aviv, which will remain a hotspot, as well as areas of Jerusalem. So you said, you know, this is... Netanyahu's sixth crack of the whip. How is this different and what does this mean you know going forward um, in the medium term and regionally as well? No definitely uh, in the past week or so we've uh, seen some developments that may hint at what is to come uh, regionally as well as a consequence of uh, the new government. Uh, last week the National Security Minister, the newly appointed minister, paid a visit to Temple Mount, uh, also known as the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound. Um, this spurred concerns among regional governments 
of a potential change in the status quo of the site, which represents essentially a red line for Palestinian militant groups. Um, and these kind of elevated concerns triggered a UN Security Council meeting uh, last week, so on the 5th of January. Uh, while there isn't any indication right now that the government will look to change the status quo of the site, key flashpoints in the coming months, especially during Ramadan when uh, the issue of the rights of Muslim worshippers at the site is particularly contentious, trigger events are likely to be uh, any instance of Israeli settlers storming the compound, as well as Israeli police using heavy-handed tactics against Muslim worshippers or potentially restricting access to Muslim worshippers in any way. Now, implications that we can see stemming from this will be uh, the increased risk of clashes at the compound itself, uh, as well as wider unrest in the Palestinian territories, so in areas of Gaza and uh, the West Bank and knock-on effects of these elevated ethno-religious tensions will threaten a return to um, potentially a spate of terror attacks as we witnessed uh, last spring even, and the less likely event of a major escalation, uh, a cross-border escalation between uh, Gaza and Israel. Although uh, at present we haven't seen indications that such an escalation is imminent. So on the Iran issue, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is uh, highly likely to try and uh, lead a more cohesive anti-Iran policy with the US. And this comes against the backdrop of JCPOA renewal negotiations, which have effectively collapsed in recent months. Though the Biden administration is still uh, reportedly uh, conducting covert diplomacy with Iran and maybe trying to strike a more limited nuclear deal. That being said, increased hostile rhetoric between Iran and Israel uh, will in turn drive regional tensions and we're likely to see an uptick in tit-for-tat hostilities. And so are we going to see a conflict in the next you know, 12, 24 months or will it remain largely, as you say, tit-for-tat and asymmetrical? At present, uh, an armed conflict remains unlikely. Uh, so as you said, it's, it's likely to remain uh, asymmetric. Likely targets of such hostilities would be uh, critical infrastructure, cyber infrastructure in particular. Um, so we can definitely expect to see more of that in the coming months. Well, thank you again for joining us. And I'm sure it's an issue that your desk will uh, be very busy with over the coming weeks and months. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Now to the US, and recent attacks on energy infrastructure have left many scratching their heads and wondering what on earth is going on. To help us unpick this, we have Sydney Stewart, our North American analyst. Uh, delighted uh, that you can join us, Sydney. And I think, like me, many of our viewers and listeners will be wondering what on earth has been going on in this space. Maybe you can um, add a little bit of context for us. Uh, well, it's a great question. What is going on? It's uh, rather been a couple... Uh uh, there have been a couple peculiar incidents uh, in the U.S. recently with regards to our electricity infrastructure. Um, so back on uh, the 3rd of December, we had an initial attack uh, against, the, against two electricity substations in Moore County, North Carolina. Now this left ultimately 40,000 people without power during a period when temperatures were sub-zero actually. So many people were very cold, or sub-zero Celsius that is. Many people were very cold and uh, without power for uh, up to four days um, as the electricity uh, utility worked to repair what had occurred. So 
there was a coordinated attempt by several individuals to take out two different electricity substations simultaneously using a small arms fire. Now, this was followed on the 25th of December by a similar attempt uh, against substations in Washington, in Pierce County near Tacoma, um, and that ultimately left about uh, 14,000 people without power and was repaired uh, more rapidly than the incident in North Carolina. So if I could just interject there, I mean, is this on the radar of the security agencies in the US? It is. So in January of 2022, so uh, just over a year ago, the Department of Homeland Security issued a report in which it outlined credible threats that have been made by far-right extremist groups uh, with their intention to carry out targeted attacks against electricity infrastructure in the U.S. Now, um, just a couple weeks prior to the incident in North Carolina, uh, the DHS sent a private uh, note to electricity utilities warning them of a possible imminent threat posed by such groups uh, who are motivated by racially and ethnically supremacist ideologies. So, uh, rather the DHS was a bit ahead of the curve on that and was able to give forewarning, although was not able to head off the threat entirely as we saw. So Sydney, you know, the, these far right um, and you know, even far left single issue extremist groups tend to promulgate their message on social media. We've seen that through our own research and collection. Uh, has any of this hit the social media channels? Well, uh, actually, uh, it was found on a Telegram channel recently, a 14-page document outlining how to carry out the, these exact uh, low-level attacks against uh, electricity substations using small arms fire. And the interesting thing is that this document was compiled by a far-right group, but in fact, the Telegram channel on which it was found belonged to an ultra-left Marxist uh, extremist group, basically. So you might even see a dynamic in which different groups motivated by different ideologies mm. are all trying to implement the similar technique to create unrest. I, I mean, it's, it's absolutely intriguing. Um, my, the burning question is, why? What's the motivation? But I think, you know, our listeners and viewers will be asking more. So what next? Do we see this continuing into 2023 or even escalating? Indeed, it seems that this type of incident uh, where people use small arms fire against uh, electricity, grid infrastructure and substations is an emerging uh, tactic, technique and procedure implemented by any extremist group that might seem that might be likely to pursue you know, large-scale impact against the population in order to gain coverage and uh, potentially undermine the credibility of government as well, particularly with, you know, trying to create large-scale power outages. The intent is understood to be that you undermine the credibility of government to respond in such a situation and you might instigate further unrest uh, against the government in that situation. So as we go in, you know, through the electoral calendar in the U.S., do we then assess this might increase as we get closer to the election? Yes, certainly. Uh, I would forecast that the, this type of low-level incident will increase uh, in accordance with uh, political tensions and political instability in the U.S. Uh, as we move closer and closer to the 2024 uh, presidential election cycle. And additionally, for private companies, the impact is a bit more tangible. So the North American Electricity Grid Reliability Corporation is on deadline to compile a report within 120 days, uh, which is likely to call for greater grid hardening and physical security measures. So it's likely that also um, 
companies will become liable and more responsible for ensuring that those physical security requirements are in place and therefore will have uh, a, a uh, subsequent you know, policy and reputational risk. So physical threats, physical risks, but also a regulatory burden for mm -hmm. those companies involved. Really interesting topic and I'm looking forward to the ongoing coverage from your desk. But for now, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Gareth. And finally, we are joined by Zofia Walford to discuss rising tensions in Kosovo. Zofia, welcome. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Really great, and it's wonderful for you to join us on what is a really important issue. So, your desk has been covering this for quite a while now. Yes. Uh, we've seen some recent incidents, I know, but we have been you know, pushing out documents and reports to clients for a good few months. Um, for our viewers and listeners, I'm wondering if you could just put us in the picture um, as to the context of what we've been seeing over the last few months. Um, sure. So I'll start from a bit earlier because I'm sure um, many of, of our listeners might not be completely familiar with, uh, with um, the background of Kosovo. So Kosovo became independent from Serbia in uh, 2008. The majority of the international community recognizes Kosovo's independence, but Serbia continues to um, refuse to recognize uh, their independence. Kosovo remains ethnically and religiously divided, which leads to flare-ups every now and then. Um, so the current tensions that we are seeing now have started already in August last year, but um, in recent years we have seen many instances of uh, ethno-religious uh, tensions um, in Kosovo and uh, tensions between Kosovo and Serbia. Okay, so that's really great context, thank you. So potentially nothing that new, but can you just bring us up to speed with what we've been seeing recently? Yes, so during um, some, the summer of last year, Kosovo's Prime Minister Kurti started to push for the re-registration of uh, Serbian license plates in Kosovo, and that created considerable tensions between ethnic Serbs and ethnic Albanians in the country. Basically, Prime Minister Kurti wanted to ban Serbian uh, license plates that have been issues, issued by um, Serbia for 2008. Um, but many ethnic Serbs, Serbs um, perceived that as an act against the ethnic minority of the country. So after, after Prime Minister Kurti started uh, pushing for the re-registration of the license plates, a dialogue led by the EU started between Serbia and Kosovo. And in the end, in November, the two countries have agreed that Serbia will stop issuing uh, license plates for Kosovo cities. And Kosovo said that they will not ban the um, license plates that have been issued by Serbia in the past. So in the end, an agreement um, has been reached. But by that time, we have seen considerable uh, um, ethnic tensions in um, northern Kosovo. So. In December, I remember your desk actually pushed out um, a report. It was actually a daily, um, a, a daily entry in our World Risk Register, which detailed the arrest of a Serbian, um, a Serbian policeman and the resulting protests. Can you tell our listeners and viewers a little bit more about that? Yes, yeah, so um, as I said, an agreement has been reached in um, late November between Serbia and Kosovo but um, that didn't put an end to, to the tensions uh, because um, before the agreement uh, was signed between the two countries, many ethnic uh, Serb officials have resigned from their positions in Kosovo. 
And because of that, Kosovo um, scheduled elections for mid-December last, um, last year. Um, but um, that sparked again a new wave of demonstrations by uh, the ethnic minority in the country, particularly in the northern uh, part of the country. Um, and um, those, demonstra those demonstrations have continued throughout um, December. And um, I think it was in later in December uh, when we have seen reports that a former Serbian police officer was arrested by, um, by Kosovo police units. And this has again um, um, sparked new tensions between the two communities. So after the arrest of the um, ethnic police officer, we have seen um, um, other members of the ethnic Serb community um, raising road uh, blockades and barricades in northern Kosovo and um, throughout um, um, the throughout recent months we have seen um, arson attacks um, on uh, car registration offices. So, um, so the, the tensions that we are seeing now have sometimes resulted in violence between um, ethnic Serb Serbs and, um, and ethnic Albanians, especially uh, between the minority and the police forces, which now constitute mostly of uh, ethnic Albanians after the resignation, after the mass resignation of, of ethnic Serbs from public um, offices. So we're seeing ongoing tensions then. It, it, it looks like the flare-ups aren't going to stop. Now, uh, like many of our listeners and viewers, I'm old enough to remember the, uh, the wars of the late 90s. Um, is that where we're heading? Are we heading for something more substantial in terms of an armed conflict? Or this is, is this just kind of usual and, and what, we, what we forecast? So already in 2021, we have seen um, tensions increasing between ethnic Serbs and ethnic Albanians because um, roads being blocked between Serbia and Kosovo. We have um, seen arson attacks again on uh, car, reg car registration um, offices. And um, in response to these events, Serbia put um, its military on um, high readiness. Um, and in 2021, um, Serbia actually moved some military assets to, um, to, the board, to its borders with Kosovo. Um, this year, we have not seen any military assets being moved to the borders with Kosovo, but Serbia did put its military on high alert um, at the end of um, December last year, after the, uh, the ethnic Serb police officer was um, arrested by um, Kosovo police forces. Okay, so I'm going to try and pin you down here now, Sophia, before we, before we leave for today. Um, conflict, um, armed conflict or potentially war in 2023 um, between Kosovo and Serbia. Uh, what do you think? Um, I think there is reason to be optimistic that although we are seeing these um, tensions, we have, we have been seeing these tensions over the past um, six months, uh, we have seen positive developments um, um, regarding uh, the relationship between Serbia and Kosovo. Um, so I think um, military confrontation between the two countries will remain uh, quite unlikely, especially considering the presence of um, NATO-led uh, peacekeeping uh, forces in Kosovo. But also we have seen increased efforts by the European Union and also by the United States to mediate between the two countries in order to integrate them faster into the European Union and also to tackle Russian influence in the region. So um, last year we have seen a, a deal between Serbia and Kosovo for the free movement of their citizens, but also uh, Pristina have submitted their uh, 
their application for um, for EU membership um, last year. So I think there is now a window of opportunity for these two countries to um, to normalize their relationships, especially considering that it is now a priority for the European Union to ensure that there are no new conflicts um, in its neighborhood. So reasons for optimism. Yes. I always <laughs> like to end on an optimistic note. And thank you so much, Sophia, for joining thank us. You. And that's it for this week. Uh, big thank you to Anastasia, Sydney, and Sophia. And of course, thanks to you for joining us. Please join us again in our next episode. And remember to like, and subscribe however you're viewing or listening to this episode.